Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Um, Let's pray as we look at this part of the Bible. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privileged position that we are in. Thank you that you have given us your word. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust it. Lord, we ask that when we are tempted that we would trust you and want to live for you. Lord, we pray that you would rescue us from temptation. In Jesus' name, amen. We're thinking about temptation. And I don't know what is the first thing that comes to your mind, but I'll just keep it big picture okay think about temptation giving in to temptation it's never as rewarding never as satisfying as you think it might be when you're being tempted Um, any pleasure we might gain was short-lived and it's riddled with these feelings of guilt maybe regret and then you have the unavoided unavoidable consequences of what you've just done um, when we are being tempted, that, that forbidden thing or that forbidden event, it just feels so desirable. But once you've given in, then the thing we have, it kind of feels dirty. Any perceived gain, it's overshadowed by the consequences of our actions. And there's also this searing of our consciences that happens too. So the more often you give in to the same temptation, the harder it is to resist your conscience becomes hardened and you think maybe it's not that bad after all. But when you think about temptation, it's like Satan deceives us, tricks us into thinking that we'll be happier if we do what we want rather than what God wants. And then when we succumb, it's then like Satan stands back and points the finger at us and accuses us. It's like Satan plays two roles. He's the He's the deceiver, the one that tricks us in the first place, and then he's the accuser, standing before God, accusing us for what we've done. And as you think about temptation, on on one level, yeah, it is a way in which God tests us to see if we trust him and how strong our trust in God is. But on another level, it's Satan trapping us, tricking us and trapping us. When you look through the 66 books of the Bible, all the way through the Bible, you see human beings um, giving in to temptation, failing. 
temptation, it's there at the very beginning of the Bible in the third chapter. So if you look at um, Genesis chapter 3, the sin of Adam and Eve has been with us ever since then. Let me me remind you of how it all began. So Genesis 3 verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? There's Satan, the deceiver. He's lying, tricking, twisting God's word, putting words in God's mouth, causing Eve to doubt God's goodness. He goes, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No, God didn't say that at all. God said don't eat from one tree in the garden. But Eve was tempted to doubt God's goodness and she takes matters into her own hands and then you see what happens. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then you read on, all of a sudden they realise they're naked and they start to hide from each other and they start to hide from God. The consequences of their temptation, giving in to the temptation, start to hit home. But you see how that first temptation works? It's very similar to the way we're tempted, isn't it? Death now has become part of life, part of our existence, because of Adam and Eve's temptation. Satan deceives us into thinking that the fruit of rebellion will be pleasing and when we give in to that temptation, we're not trusting God. We're not trusting that God is good and that his instructions are right. But now, ever since Adam and Eve, we live with death looming. We live with the toil and the pain of everyday life and we have this ongoing battle with Satan as Satan tempts and as we succumb. So from Genesis onwards in the Bible, there's this battle with people who only ever have fleeting victories over Satan's temptation. But today we're looking at um, Luke chapter 4. In chapter 4, what what Luke shows us is that Jesus doesn't fall for temptation. He doesn't stumble in the way that we do. He doesn't cave into the devil's deceit. But a little bit of context first. So we're we're starting at 4 verse 1. If you just look up, to the end of chapter 3, there's that genealogy there. It's one of the, the favourite places to work through in the Bible, isn't it? One of those fantastic places. But if you've been in youth group, um, then you've shown Steve everything you know about the Old Testament, the other Steve. Have a look backwards through this genealogy. Work your way up. So it starts with Adam. Adam and Eve are the two people who brought sin into the world. They fell for temptation. And then you keep rolling your eyes up. There's Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, all these cool names, Lamech, and then Noah. By the time you get to Noah's day, the problem of sin has infected the world so much, it's everywhere, that God sends a flood to wipe everything out. It's like God hits control, alt, delete, sets, resets everything. Life on earth begins again under Noah and his family, but Satan's still there. He continues to tempt, and human beings continue to succumb. Keep working your way backwards up through this genealogy. You'll come to Abraham, the man that God made promises to. God promised that through Abraham he would bless all nations. Abraham becomes the father of Isaac, who's the father of Jacob. Jacob has his name changed to Israel, has 12 sons, and you've got the 12 tribes of Israel. The people of God in the Old Testament, the people that God saves out of slavery in Egypt, gathers around Mount Sinai, gives them rules and instructions for how they're to live in the land, 
And as Moses comes down the mountain to pass these instructions on to the people, there they are bowing down to a, a golden calf. Once again, Satan is at work. Once again, human beings have succumbed. You keep rolling your eyes through this genealogy and it happens time and time again. But what Luke's showing us in chapter 3 is that Jesus becomes one of us. He gets inserted into this genealogy of sinful human beings, of people that keep falling when tempted. But the main bit for understanding the temptation comes next as you work your way through this genealogy. So thinking about Israel still, the Israelites... God brings them to the border of the promised land of Canaan. They're about to cross over into the the promised land and they send the spies in. Remember the spies? The spies scout out the land for 40 days. They work their way through the land. They come back and they report to the people and the people are scared of the giants in the land. They're so scared that they don't trust God. God's command is to go in and take possession of the land. It's a good land and so on, but they don't trust God. They fail to trust God's word. And so in Numbers 13 and then in Numbers 14, God declares that his people are going to wander in the desert for 40 years. It's like one year for each of those days of exploring the land so that the whole generation of people will die off. And this is like God teaching his people, teaching his people how to live. So after 40 years in the desert, they gather around to join, to cross into the promised land again. And Moses gives five sermons. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. Moses' five sermons to the people of Israel telling them, reminding them of what happened in the wilderness, reminding them of how they are to live in the land. But have a look at chapter 8. This is all the background to Jesus' temptation. So after 40 years, um, Moses recaps. He looks back over this time in the wilderness as a teaching time. 8 verse 1 goes, Be careful to follow every command I have given you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord has promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether, you, um, whether or not you would keep his commands. And then verse 3, he humbled you by causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's God testing his people, putting them in a position where they're hungry and then giving them the food they wouldn't expect, teaching them, actually, you've got to trust God. You've got to trust God and his word. We were running our eyes back through this genealogy in Luke chapter 3, a genealogy of sinful human beings, um, people that don't really learn the lesson to trust in God. And so these people in, of Israel, they will continue to, to rebel against God too. But with Deuteronomy in mind, look at how Luke 4 opens. So Luke chapter 4, there's Jesus, full of the Spirit. The Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And when you read wilderness, you think the people of Israel, the time of testing, the time of learning in the desert. As Luke writes his orderly account, it's purposeful the way he's put this together. He wants us to understand Jesus' temptation in the context of Israel being tested in the desert. And there's similarities. So 8 verse 2 I pointed out. Um, Deuteronomy 8 verse 2, God led the Israelites into the wilderness. Luke 4 verse 1, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Luke 4 verse 2, after 40 days in the wilderness, Luke says Jesus was hungry. Duh, it's kind of an obvious thing to point out, but I think you meant to see the next connection with Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Look at 8 verse 3 again. He humbled you, causing you to hunger. 
and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the word of God. As you look at Jesus' temptation, you've got the time of Israel in the wilderness in the background. They failed at every point, but Jesus doesn't at any point. So the temptation of Jesus was real, but unlike Israel and everyone in that genealogy in chapter 3, Jesus passes every test. Um, God the Son, a member of the Trinity, God the Son, has become a human. He's been joined into this genealogy of sinful humanity, but while Jesus is fully human, he remains fully God and he doesn't sin. He's the perfect man. Um, There's a second very important bit of context to understand as you look at Jesus' temptation. Um, Jesus was tempted as the son of God. If I say son of man tonight, hear son of God. I said it the wrong way this morning too many times. Um, Jesus was tempted as the son of God. If you look at 4 verse 3, see how Satan addresses him? If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Satan knows he is the son of God. But Satan's saying, well, if you are the son of God, turn this bread into this, this stone into food. Luke's showing us, as we read through his gospel, that Jesus is the son of God. But what does it mean for him to be the son of God? Well, it's almost a title. It's like Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of God in that way. He's God's anointed king. He's the one God has chosen. He's God the son who has become the son of God. He's a special man, an anointed Messiah, the son of God. Look back up at chapter 3, verse 22. So Luke, he's putting this orderly account together so that we will see who Jesus is. In 3, verse 22, when Jesus is baptized by John, um, it says, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my son whom i love with you i am well pleased here's god the father declaring jesus is his son but there's more to it he's declaring him to be the son of god he's the one on whom who's been anointed by the spirit he is the messiah is what it's saying this voice from heaven you'll hear it again so we're looking at luke 4 through to luke 9 at church here at the start or in chapter 3 you hear the voice from heaven declaring, this is God's son. And at the end of the section in chapter 9, you hear the same voice again in 9 verse 35. This is at the transfiguration. A voice came from heaven saying, this is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. Two times Luke records a voice from heaven declaring, this is the son of God. And everywhere in between, Luke's showing us what it means for Jesus to be the son of God, the Messiah. Um, God, the son, member of the Trinity, has become a man, but no ordinary man. He is the son of God. There's a few more pieces to this puzzle. If you look back up at the genealogy, did you notice how it ends? It's a bit strange for for our ears. It goes, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam, Luke refers to Adam as the son of God because he was the first man that God put on this earth to rule over the earth under God, to have that role of managing this earth, ruling this earth under God to be a son of God like that. But we've already seen in Genesis 3 that with Eve, um, Adam, well, he made a meal of that job, didn't he? Literally. He failed. He gave in to temptation. He failed as a son of God. But this idea of God having a son 
continues through the Old Testament. The, the people of Israel as a nation, they're referred to as sons of God too. So in, in Exodus 4, verse 22, um, Moses is told, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. But we've already seen that the whole nation of Israel fail as the son of God. They fall for temptation again and again. Deeper into Israel's history, um, the kings of Israel, they are referred to as sons of God. Uh, For example, if you consider the promises God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He'll be the one who will build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. The Messiah, the promised king, the anointed one, is spoken of as the son of God, the anointed son of God, the king who will rule in God's kingdom. We looked at one or two kings last year in church and we saw each of those kings fail in that role of son of God. Each of them succumbed to temptation from Satan. But the Old Testament keeps holding out this hope of a son of God who will come and rule forever. And so when Reich took us through Psalm 2, you see the same language there. This is my son. Um, Luke in his gospel, what he's doing is, in between these two voices from heaven, he's showing us Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Right through Luke, we also see that the way Jesus will come to his glory, the way that the Messiah will come to his glory, is through obedience to God's word and suffering. And over the Easter weekend, we looked at Luke. We looked at Luke chapter 24. So after Jesus' death and resurrection, when he's talking with his disciples, he shows them that every word in the Old Testament, in the law, the prophets and the writings, it's about him, the Messiah. And he says the Messiah must suffer and rise on the third day and forgiveness will be preached in his name. Jesus knows from the beginning this is where he's heading. In order to be the son of of God, he will need to suffer and die and rise again. For Jesus, the king, the son of God, the way to his glorification comes through obedience to God's word and through suffering. And so with all that background, then you come to look at Jesus' temptation in Luke chapter 4. You can see how this orderly account, it sets us all up for us. We know what to expect as we're reading this. Look at 4 verse 3 again. Satan goes, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. The temptation of Jesus, it's a tailored and specific temptation from Satan. It's a tailored and specific temptation of the Messiah, the son of God. The temptation is to take a shortcut, to enjoy all the privileges of being the son of of God, ruling over this creation, having control over everything, being able to turn stones into food, to have all that without the suffering. It doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. Um, Jesus didn't succumb to Satan's temptation. Look what he says in verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And you've heard that tonight, haven't you? You've heard it from back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The full verse 3 of chapter 8 of Deuteronomy goes, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, which Jesus quotes, the rest goes, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For Jesus to take shortcuts, for him to turn stones into bread, it wouldn't be what God wanted. Round one goes to Jesus. Satan comes again, though, in verse five. Satan drops the, if you are the son of God this time, because what he's offering Jesus in this next temptation 
is everything the son of man, son of God should have. So in verse five, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. You can hear Psalm two behind this. I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I will give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus knows what lies ahead of him. There's a cup of suffering. He knows exactly what needs to happen before he will come in his glory. In the Garden of Gethsemane, um, perhaps months, perhaps years down the track, he'll pray that prayer, remember? If there's any other way, Father, take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. He knows this is where he's heading. What Satan's offering is a shortcut. What Satan's offering is another way, but it would come through Jesus worshipping Satan. We know it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Satan, he's the deceiver, he's the liar. He's offering what is not his to offer and what he doesn't, won't really give. And you've got this whole problem of sin that doesn't get dealt with if Jesus goes this way. It just doesn't work. And so Jesus again quotes Deuteronomy back at Satan in verse 8. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's not going to worship Satan. He's not going to bow down to Satan because he worships God alone. Quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. So Jesus doesn't fall for the lie of Satan and Satan comes again. This time he brings back that line, if you are the son of, son of God. Um, and this time he quotes the Bible at Jesus, which is a word of warning for all of us. When people quote the Bible, test what they're saying. When someone quotes lots of Deuteronomy and Numbers and Luke, test what you're hearing. Weigh it up. Because just because people are quoting the Bible doesn't mean they're right. Look what Satan says, verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. If you were to throw yourself down off the temple, yeah, you would die. Satan's saying, give it a shot, God will save you, and quotes the Bible at Jesus. Um, Jesus sees straight through this temptation and again quotes Deuteronomy in verse 12. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Every time Satan tries to trick Jesus with this shortcut method of being the son of God and enjoying all the power and authority that comes with it, um, Jesus comes back with Deuteronomy the time in the wilderness where the people were meant to learn to trust God at his word. And then the final verse, verse 13, is ominous. It goes, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So as we're reading through Luke, you hear that and then you, go, you start looking for when Satan will tempt again. And actually, it's all the way through. It's constant. So the truth is, in those three temptations in the wilderness, Satan has thrown everything he has at Jesus, and Jesus didn't succumb. But Satan's not, do- not done. He keeps coming back with the same temptations over and over again. So Jesus, God the Son, became the Son of God. And as the Messiah, he knows that the way to glory is through obedience. He knows that the Messiah must suffer. And all the time, here's Satan trying to give shortcuts to spoil the plan. And as you continue to read through Luke's gospel, Luke will show us Jesus, the son of God, and his authority over nature, over sickness, over disease, over demons. You watch and see Jesus turn 
fish into and bread into massive, great big meal. Jesus could have taken a shortcut at any point and kept doing these miracles to gain, I don't know, favour and, and be popular among people. But instead, he keeps moving on because he's got to preach. He keeps moving. The Son of God, the Messiah, knows that he's heading to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die. And so at the end of this section, at the end of um, in chapter 9, Peter finally recognises who Jesus is. He goes, you're God's Messiah. And Jesus says, well, keep that to yourself. Meanwhile, I've got to get to Jerusalem and I've got to die and rise again. And then in 9.51, Luke says, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He is determined. That's where he's heading. He knows he will suffer and die and rise again. This is a little bit of an aside, but if you think about the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples, so if you look at Luke 11, you know, you'll know the prayer, but Luke 11, it says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And then Jesus gives him this prayer. And as you looked at this prayer, you think behind it, you can, you can hear the temptation of Jesus. You can hear those themes running through. It's like he's teaching his disciples to pray what he, Jesus, would be praying. So it goes, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Give glory to God alone. Don't worship anything else. Your kingdom come. This is all about Jesus, the Messiah, bringing God's kingdom. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Um, For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Jesus... God the Son became one of us. He became the Son of God, the Messiah. He lived our existence. He knows what it is like to be tempted. Um, But as the Son of God, he never caved in to temptation. And so he knows what it's like to be tempted better than we will ever know. When we're tempted, we get to the point where we cave. Jesus never did. He pushed on. You know how hard it gets the longer you resist. Jesus knows exactly what that's like. Um, jump ahead, there's a bit of jumping around, but if you jump ahead to Luke chapter 22, in verse 28 of Luke chapter 22, Jesus is having that last supper with the disciples, and he said this strange thing in verse 28. He goes, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And looking back, I wonder if it's saying the way that Satan's been tempting him this whole time to get him off track. You've, you've been with me and stood by me through my trials. Further down in verse 40, he takes him out to the Garden of Gethsemane, Um, And he says in verse 40, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And just before Judas arrives in verse 46, he comes and finds him sleeping and says, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. In between telling his disciples not to fall into temptation, Jesus doesn't fall into temptation. If you look between verses 40 and 46, you'll find that prayer in verse 41. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, If you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. All that time through Luke's gospel, Satan's in the background, tempting Jesus. But Jesus doesn't give in, even when he's on the cross. Remember what the people call out at him? Um, the, 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 The soldiers, for example, they taunt him by saying, if you're the king of Jews, then save yourself. It's a similar sort of temptation, isn't it? If you're the king of the Jews... Use your power, save yourself. But the irony is, by not saving himself, Jesus is doing what God the Father wanted him to do. He's doing God's will. He's completing the task of the Messiah, the Son of God. So the death of the sinless Son of God 
wins forgiveness for anyone who put their trust in him. And in, 20, in chapter 24, that's the message that gets preached, forgiveness of sins. It comes through Jesus. The Son of God has undone the mess that Adam and Eve began. Jesus, the Son of God, or God the Son, became one of us, and he's broken that monotonous cycle of sin and death. And then as we look at this, Jesus, he is now perfectly equipped to help us when we're tempted. He's, he's dealt with the consequences of any time we give in to temptation, but he also understands what it's like to be tempted. And so I reckon the writer of the Hebrews is worth looking at. There's a bit of a distraction here, though. Just don't get distracted by the idea of a high priest. That's another sermon. But if you look at um, Hebrews chapter 2, since the children had flesh and blood, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held slavery by the fear of death. Jesus had broken into that genealogy, dealt with sin and death. If you jump down to verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make atonement. The word behind that is the word for propitiation, that he might um, pay the price for God's righteous wrath, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. There's huge encouragement for us because we will be tempted. But as you read these verses, there's huge encouragement because Jesus' death, the death of the perfect man, the death of the Son of God, it's sufficient to pay for all our sin, to buy us back. Um, And Jesus now stands to intercede on our behalf to speak to God the Father. Um, the perfect and complete high priest, that's who he is, and he's the one that we have interceding for us. So Satan, yeah, Satan continues to tempt, and we will continue to succumb. Um, Our only way out of temptation is to ask God to help us. Remember the prayer, lead us not into temptation. And we know that as we pray that prayer, our Saviour understands exactly what we're asking for. When we are tempted, we can be honest with God. We've got nothing to hide. We can be completely honest with God. We can ask God through Jesus to help us do what Jesus did, to recall God's word and keep trusting in God's word. Um, Rather than be deceived by Satan's schemes, we want to keep reminding each other of God's plans and God's purposes. We have a part we can play for each other as a church, keeping God's word in our minds and in our hearts. And on the occasions when we do fail, when we do fall, when Satan is there, accusing us, well, we don't need to feel guilty because we have Jesus as our saviour. The finished work of Jesus on the cross pays the price for our sin. So yeah, temptation is part of our life while we wait for Jesus to return. But there's another thing here. I think we need to be careful that as Christians, we don't grow confident in our own strength because that's when we will fall. We need to be realistic and understand that we are susceptible And so we need to not put ourselves in situations where we know we will fall. Um, We're fallen sinful human beings who have this kind of inbuilt tendency to disobey God, and we need to be fully aware of that. Um, As we think about temptation, yeah, there's lots more we can talk about, but I thought I'd pray for us. 
But I'd start by reading Luke 11, um, the bit of that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, and then continue praying from there. So Luke 11 goes, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into, into temptation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing way that you sent your son Jesus into the world. Lord, thank you that as your son, he lived the perfect life. Lord, thank you that he died um, the perfect death, the death of the perfect man, a death that's sufficient to pay for our sin. Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep trusting in Jesus, to keep living for him, to keep living with him as our Lord and our saviour. Father, we know that while we wait for Jesus to return, we will be tempted in many ways. Lord, we ask that you'd help us as a church to help each other to stand firm, trusting in your word, being obedient to your word. And Lord, we pray that as we, um, when we do fall in sin, Lord, we pray that we would know forgiveness, real forgiveness in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.